So, Father, we say thank you that we can know you as a father. We can know you as a friend. Thank you for your profound, steadfast, stubborn goodness that will never be anything other than good, for you are good all the time. You've been good this week. In the midst of our struggles, our trials, you have been good. And you are great. There is nothing beyond you, nothing above you. You have no rival. You have no equal. And so we come today and, and we, we draw on the goodness of our God, our Father, who's come to make himself known, who is at the same time infinite creator. We worship you. We worship you. Father, we ask as we come in, in the name of Jesus that you'd open our, our eyes to see, open our ears to hear. Help us engage with your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Morning, everybody, and, and welcome from my side. Just a sense as I'm preparing this, I think we're all struggling with and just fatigue. Uh, yeah, everything to do with lockdown, even, even lockdown church is starting to just wear us down. And, and just a sense, guys, hang in there. I mean that with all my heart. I'm praying for you. And, and, and just to say, hold on. John, when he introduces this letter, says that he's in the suffering in the kingdom and the patient endurance. We're going to see some more of that. Just the fact that we do, we have to hold on. We have to hang in there. And so, guys, let's, let's just do that. But there's also joy. There's also delight. I mean, who would have imagined that we'd have... Noah, get to Lizzie, and they do the children's talk for us all the way from London. So guys, it was really incredible. And thank you, Andrea and Uncle Peter and Helen. And then, you know, Jess behind the scenes working at some of our new tech and new tech availability. Uh, thank you for your work, guys. We really, really appreciate it. So we're coming back to the honesty of not yet and the faith for more. And today we're looking at the beauty versus the beast. God's kingdom has been inaugurated by the slain lamb who conquers his enemies by loving them. He conquers his enemies by laying down his life for them, by dying for them. And as we've scanned this book of Revelation, we've seen levels of history and consequence in echoes of the plagues of Egypt, we see that God's judgment is active. It is certain. Uh, right and wrong matter to God. Yet it is partial in the sense that God leaves room for redemption. There's always a remnant. And judgment is often paused. God is waiting for more people to receive him. And so while we are on earth, we are simultaneously in the great tribulation of suffering and in the glorious reign of Jesus. And so in this short reign, I mean short series, we've seen that, that it is now and not yet. It is both lion and lamb. It is earth and heaven. And the crucial word each time thus far has been the word and. 
Now and not yet. Lion and lamb. They, they're both true. They're both real. They're both correct. Earth and heaven. But today, it's not the beauty and the beast. <laughs> today, we come to the beauty versus the beast. And we're going deeper into those levels that we spoke about last time. We're really into the orchestral pieces that are underneath, as it were, the treble and bass cleft. And, and we're gaining insight into the drivers of the human story and the story of recreation. Remember that this is not sequential. These things are simultaneous. Something happened at the surface level. Something else is going on. Something else is going on. And so we're seeing now in today's reading what is happening in the heavenly places that has a direct bearing on our earthly experience. And so we're going to go to Revelations chapter 12 where we find the beauty versus the beast. And verse 1 we read, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. And she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who, quote, will rule the nations with an iron scepter. Psalm 2, and end quote, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days, about three and a half years, as it were, half, half the story. Verse 7, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient snake called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, and the, note, authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down, and they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Re Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and all you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. So we come to the part of the book of Revelations where the seven... The symbols of seven are paused for a little bit and we are taken into 
the signs or the symbols that describe and compress history, this time, as it were, not through the Exodus narrative of, of judgment and, and uh, redemption and freedom, but, but this time through a series of biblical images or signs. And the first one that we meet is the beauty. We meet this woman of royalty who represents the story of the people of God, represents the people of God themselves. And we could go through the book and, and, and she, as it were, develops as a character and finishes as a radiant bride. And then we meet the beast, a dragon from the heavenlies, who is none other, verse 9, than the ancient snake, the serpent himself, the devil. And the woman gives birth to the Messiah who will rule the nations with an iron rod, which is the reference to Psalm 2. And there is victory because of the Lamb's sacrifice, His blood offered. And this victory comes through the people who bear witness in their word and in their lives as they lay down their lives. They love not their lives in following the Lamb. And even in the midst of this victory, the war continues on earth between the dragon and the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the people of God. So notice this, the real enemy, the true villain, is cosmic. It's, he is a spiritual being who, having lost all authority in heaven, is now seeking to gain authority on earth through human agreement and partnership. And he did so in the fall. This is human history being compressed. The life of Jesus literally being described as a birth and then being snatched to heaven. But we gain insight more when we understand that that same life is the one who offered himself in the blood of the Lamb. So we get two more signs that then follow. And, and, the, and they are human signs and they partner with the dragon. Out of the wild sea of humanity, we find the first beast, and that's described in Revelation 13, and then in the second half of the chapter, the second beast, his sidekick, who's the beast from the land. Both derive, the text is very clear, their authority from the dragon. Now, there's, a, there's so much fascinating detail that I have to just omit to zero in on the main points. So we, we know who the role players are in chapter 12, but who's these beasts and what are their marks and what are their numbers and all that kind of stuff. We need to take a quick look at that. So we're now in chapter 13. The first beast describes, with a capital letter, it's describing empire. The description of the beast is a compression of Daniel's four beasts that represented four um, historical, oppressive, conquering empires from the time of Babylon through Syria, Greece, and ultimately Rome. And, and John's vision, although taking place at the time of Rome, compresses these four into a single beast. In other words, it's not which empire, it's all empires. And it's all empires before Babylon, and it's all empires after Rome that take on the authority of the snake. You see, empire, when humankind, apart from the spirit of Jesus, attains 
and perfects the exercise of dominion and power and control over others and over the world and its ecologies, the result apart from the spirit of Jesus is monstrous. It's a beast. And beast number one is the power of empire, especially through conquest and oppression through military might. And the second beast is an enabling power or spirit, also deriving its authority from the serpent. It, it, it is a demonic beast, but it is a deceptive one. And it gives breath, it gives its spirit to the empire. It serves the empire, but it preserves the empire. And it is deeply deceptive. It says it speaks like a lamb. But especially through economic power, it yields this power seductively and effectively in the service of empire and the dragon. And then we come to another symbol, the mark of the beast. And there could be a whole other stuff, but let me simply say that in, anyone from Israel would have been thinking immediately of Deuteronomy chapter 6, where you would take in, in a prayer of allegiance to God, hear o, Lord, uh, hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And so we pour out this prayer, this confession of the uniqueness of God. And, and they would take that prayer and sometimes some other things, and they would write it on a little phylactery and it would go on their forehead and they would tie it to their right hand. And that was a symbol that both in my thought and in my actions, my allegiance to God dictates and directs my obedience. And it shows my love and my worship to the Lord in thought and in action. The beast will create his own attachment, his own worship and his own obedience by, by creating an anti-Shema. A counterfeit, demanding people submit to and give complete allegiance to the military and economic machine of empire. And in effect, they make the human empires that crush and dominate people into the God of generation after generation. In every generation, the beast of empire will demand your total allegiance. A mistake we've made in interpreting this is thinking that at some point in the distant future, someone's going to come along with a, with a literal like, rubber stamp or something and stick this on us. No, we face this temptation every single day. So empire comes demanding your allegiance and it threatens to crush you or it promises to reward you with power and with money if you will play its game. You see, it's not always violent and crude. It is also elusive and seductive, hard to nail down, tough to unmask its tentacles, never fully present. And so it's described as a beast that was, is not, and will be again. And... And, and so we have to be really discerning. Each generation working out, we find it easy to look back and say, oh, that was a nasty empire. That was really ugly back then. How could they do that? 
How could people serve that empire back then? And, and, and we kind of can project a little bit into the future and go, oh, one day we'll have to watch out for the empire. But we struggle to believe that it's right here because it's elusive and seductive and speaks with the voice of the Lamb, of a Lamb. It was, is not, but will be again. We find it easy to, to point elsewhere, but we, we struggle to see the power of empire when it's right upon us. You see, it recycles itself. It reinvents. It reincarnates. And yes, this empire does, through some of the symbols, refer to probably some very historical beings in the Roman story, for example. But to, to get stuck there is to miss the point of the transferable nature and application of the text. So... Let's ask this question then. What are we to do with this? Well, number one, we are to discern and to endure. Chapter 13 and verse 9 says, Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, that, that was a favorite saying of Jesus. We have to stop, think deeply about what we are hearing. And then... Because of the power and the nature of this first beast, if people are going to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. And if people are going to be killed with the sword, then with the sword they will be killed. And then this statement, we need to, we need to discern and endure. This cause, this discerning of, of empire, of the beast of human power and control and domination and exclusion or elitist inclusion. This power calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. It requires, as it were, again, to walk in the opposite spirit. So the one spirit that's coming at you is this dominant, controlling, impressive spirit. And, and, and confronting this beast and defeating this beast demands not military or economic or political power. It demands that we choose love and selfless service and sacrifice as our means to authority from the Lamb. Patient endurance and faithfulness. So this does not require an empire. We don't need an empire to win. We already have a kingdom. Hear me. We don't need to control millions of minions to achieve the will of Jesus. You just have to be master of one, and that is yourself. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. If you can master and lead and direct just one person effectively into submission to God and to obedience, you will defeat the dragon. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Something else that comes out of this is that, especially relevant to today, we need to interrogate and discern our economy, our, our way of ordering society. So in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus likens his conflict with Satan to encountering three expressions 
of human community and society. He describes a kingdom, a city, and a household. And, and in Revelation, we see throughout the book the same three in contrast and in conflict. And so we see the kingdom of God versus the empire or empires, however many there are, because they have the same spirit. The kingdom of God versus the empire of oppression. Or the, in regard to the city, we see the new Jerusalem, the holy city, versus Babylon, the city of exploitation, the ultimate prostitute, which leads us to the third picture, which is that of marriage of a beautiful bride versus adultery with the prostitute that comes to offer herself in intimate and yet vile ways for those who will receive her favors. And so these, the contrast side, the evil expressions of the social order, the text is clear, they exalt themselves, their power, their advantage, their economy, their wealth, their glamour, and their glory. And for a while they look great and impressive, but in Revelations 18 verse 3, we see that to these powers, human beings and lives are expendable. Together with commodities like, like gold or spices or wood or fabric or unimaginable riches and jewels, together with those, humans to empire are just a commodity. Humans are just a means to greater power or wealth. What we see in massive contrast in the city of God is that we find that heaven designs an economy for the inclusion and the flourishing of the least. And we really have to think about this. Because the Bible has been teaching since day one that, that God has an advantage towards the poor. It's almost like he's got a bias. Not, not because... He isn't there, but because we so naturally think that he's impressed by our worldly expressions of wealth and power. And so in the economy of heaven, the greatness of a culture is determined by how it treats its most vulnerable. In the economy of God, the most vulnerable are the most valuable. We need to understand the economy of God, the priority of God, and how the kingdom of God works. Jesus said that he preached the good news to the poor. Didn't he preach it to everyone? Yes, he did. But there's something in the economy of God, in the kingdom of God, in which the most vulnerable are the most valuable to God. And in this kingdom, in this economy, the riches and the resources and the fruit, Revelation chapter 20 and 21, and the abundance is for the healing of the nations. Sorry, 21 and 22. And this means that we need to be aware of the ways in which we may have to, choose to, or maybe without choice, endure exclusion from power and economic advantage because we follow the Lamb. We choose not to partner with that spirit. We choose not to serve that authority. 
and we therefore endure. We can't trade. We can't do what everybody else does who, who aligns to that beast. And we exclude ourselves, let alone they kick us out, from taking advantage of, of the power and of their economy. Not because some, of some random 5G conspiracy or a one world order, but through the everyday ways in which the beast of human power requires us to exploit others. And so we, we've got to think of this word complicit, which means that, that I have become involved in something deeply wrong by indirect actions. And I may become complicit in treating human beings as mere commodities based on the phone I buy, the coffee I drink. Wars are being fought over some of those commodities. The running shoes I use, made in some Vietnamese sweatshop. The exotic food I import that results in climate change and massive human suffering. Or the food dumping that, that destroys local capacity and employment in the name of a bargain and economizing in my supermarket. Guys, this is far more ordinary than some massive conspiracy theory out there. It is so seductive. It is so everyday. It, you can see it in hindsight. You might be able to predict in the future, but it's so hard to see when it's right in front of us. And so, no, Bill Gates is not going to drop a vaccine in your microchip, you know, a microchip in your vaccine, sorry. <laughs> it's far more ordinary. The power to influence our thoughts and actions through the economy is much more every day than we might want to concede. And so we've got to step back and we've got to go, whoa, what does it look like when I am part of a kingdom and an economy that values the most vulnerable? We find it easy to lay responsibility for poverty for those who are poor. And maybe they are simply experiencing the legacy and history and outcomes of something much more sinister and evil. And so we need to discern economy and we need to redefine belonging. So I heard of a German, an Italian, an Englishman and a Frenchman who were having a philosophical debate. I know the story is true because I found it on the internet. And, and so they were kind of debating um, you, you know, what separates man from the beasts? And the Germans said, it's obviously technology. Other creatures may indirectly have tools, yet none are able to match the heights of magnificent engineering and precision such as we have. It is our industry that separates us from the animal kingdom. I disagree, said the Italian. It's, it's our food. I mean, the creatures eat, but, but they don't cook. They don't prepare. They don't create. Humans create the most amazing dishes and come up with the most exquisite combinations that make our eating an enjoyable and cultural experience. The Englishman declares, no, 
I would say it's our heritage. I mean, just look at our towering castles, our legacy of historical battles, our glorious victories over all your countries, and an empire on which the sun never sets. And the three of them turn and look at the Frenchman, expecting his answer. And he takes a delicate sip of his champagne. And his reply is, the channel. I'll leave you to work that one out. You see, nationhood becomes a beast whenever our race or culture or nation becomes an ism. We don't see how we worship and serve and glorify our nationalism, our racism, our sexism, our discrimination, our oppression of others until it's too late when we have become part of empire and Babylon. And so we must resist the harlot, this Babylon, the great prostitution of human dominion, which derives its authority and partners with a cosmic enemy. And we must truly follow the Lamb. You see, the great prostitution of faith and religion is when we add our empire building, our divisions, our nationalism, our prejudice, and our belonging to our religion. And then in the words of Revelation, we drink unspeakable filth, the wine of adultery. You see, when religion becomes the validator of prejudice and oppression, instead of... The, the means of healing and remedy, then religion is a prostitute. And explore, I, I say this deliberately in the light of some of the traumatic international events that happened in the past two weeks. Open your ears to hear, open your eyes to see Christian movements that grow churches by partnering with nationalism or sexism, or racism, or economic exclusion, or social elitisms. They are not Christian. They are abominations. No matter how many multitude, homogenous multitudes get sucked in, and no amount of upside-down Bible waving is going to sanctify those isms ever. No political or economic advantage can justify such complicity and standing in scripture fighting this beast and this beastly deception and compromise of the followers of the lamb the seed of the woman of royalty and they are we meet them and we see them and they from every nation they from every ethnos ethnicity they are from every tribe they are from every class they are from every language paul says if anyone is in christ they are a new creation they are the new creation entering into the world there is neither male nor female slave nor free all are one in christ jesus and we destroy the followers of the lamb destroy the power of empire by the power of persistent love we love the Lamb, 
and we carry his Shema on our minds and on our hands and we demonstrate love to the world in how much we value the most vulnerable and we love one another and together in our diversity as you turn the pages of this book you find a bride so beautiful so breathtaking that when john sees the people of god as we will be he falls to worship the messenger and the angel says to him no not me worship god when we see what god will do with people from every tribe every language every nation, every class, when we see what God will do, we will worship. For we will see kingdom that has prevailed by the power of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that the beast does not have the final say. The dragon doesn't have the final say. Thank you that we get to see a picture of the full scope of history, of the human story. And it reminds us that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And so no matter how impressive, imposing, threatening and demanding or enticing and seductive the power of this world, we say no today. And we say yes to the kingdom of our God and of his Messiah. We say yes to everything that you want to do. Lord, we pray that you would shape our world through us, that you would rule through your people. And we ask for patient endurance. Lord, may we not surrender hope. May we not give up or give in. May we hold on in Jesus' name. Amen. So explore, I just want to take a moment and just invite you again to make contact. The Opportunities for spending time with one another now exist. Um, obviously, in uh, a controlled and compliant environment, uh, given the pandemic. But uh, yeah, just a, a heartfelt invitation. Pick up the phone. Make a call. Even if we just chat over the phone, even if we pray over the phone. I really do want to say to you, hold on. Hold on. Hold on and make contact. Let's do this together. Amen. Thanks, guys.